Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time to fess up. <laughs> it's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
bitches, and welcome to Fruit Loops episode 84. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, you're not going to believe this. Not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No. (laughs) There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm -hmm. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Pudman Patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. My mom finally bought a mug. Oh my God. <laughs> I was so proud of she was she was like Wendy, I just want you to know. And by the way, because of COVID, all of our sh- all of the shipments have been like delayed. Slow. But, yeah. yeah. So she made sure to like tell me about like it was my fault. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I caused COVID, mom. <laughs> you proud of me now? Um <laughs> anyway, uh, but if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So um, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Vincent Daryl Groves, Colorado's most prolific serial killer. Never heard of him, so we're ah. going to get into it. <laughs> but before we do, how you doing? I'm okay, you know, hanging out, uh, trying to not get COVID. So uh-huh, uh-huh. Not, much, not, to re- not much to report. My life is pretty boring right now. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I am much more hopeful today than I was um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, one of my white coworkers, now... Um, there have been a lot of white people coming up to me asking, what can I do? Some, some of my black friends are even getting like Venmo and cash app from people who have their white guilt and like want to give oh my them God. to like, oh my God. To that's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> let it's me a, give you some money. <laughs> let me give you some money. I'm sorry. I've been racist in my I'm past. Can I give you some money? <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten any money yet, but it is, it is half people are doing this. Oh my um, gosh. There was a whole reply episode about it. And again, I've, I've been talking to black friends um, who have been receiving cash apps, oh my uh, God. cash app donations, but and, I was really um, I'm more hopeful because um, people are seeing what black people have sort of been complaining about for right. All of a sudden it's it's uh, visible. Yeah. yeah. And um, a, a white guy who I think considers himself to be very liberal at work was like asking me 
um, he was like, I've been thinking about you and um, worried about you and your kids and your family. And um, he was talking about how uh, his wife was on a call and none of the white people had anybody who had died or succumbed to um, COVID except for an African-American person. And I've already had my family die. And he was like, I don't understand. Like, why, why can you tell me? And I was like, I got a whole laundry list. Are you ready? Have a seat. Uh, It's because (laughs) of institutional racism in healthcare systems, economic inequality, and, uh, you know, lack of access. And plus, when we go to the doctor, they don't believe us. Right. Uh, So uh, I'm more hopeful in that people are seeing, oh, shit, things are really not as great as we thought they were. Yeah, I think uh, people like to uh, pretend like it's not happening. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and now it's in their face. And now it's in their face. And it keeps happening. Yeah. Um, It, like, just won't go away. And so I'm hopeful. So that's how I am. Well, good. Thank you. We are going to get into some listener letters. Where is that mailbag and that damn angel? Hello, angels. Thank you. (laughs) All right. What's in the bag, Beth? Well, we got a voicemail. Yay! Hi, this is Bernadette from Murder Effect True Crime Podcast. I just wanted to say I've been a listener for a little bit more than a year, and I really appreciate hearing cases that you don't hear in the media or on a lot of other podcasts. Also, I'm a patron and I really appreciate the merch and extra episodes there. Keep up the good work and thanks. Bye. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you Thank so much. You. That was lovely and hip hop air horns to you, sis. Yeah. Oh, wrong, wrong <laughs> Angel wings to yeah, you. Whoops. You angel. Uh, hang on a second. I kind of <laughs> like that. Let me get my soundboard together here. <laughs> All right. Thank See what you. happens when you use those free apps on your Android phone. <laughs> what else we got? Uh, Laura on Facebook said, I just wanted to say that I just started listening to y'all last night and have just been binging episodes thank <laughs> you for doing what you do and thank oh, you laura me thank yeah. you laura. <laughs> and then else? one more on instagram we got a dm from Igrendus mitriot mm-hmm. and and they said hey girls i just want to thank you for your podcast i found you at my research for clementine barnabet as i was drawing in my american female serial killers coloring book oh. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) I hope you are well in these insane times. Please keep your great work going. I am addicted. There's so much true crime stuff online, but I really like the way you talk and your humor. Much love from Germany. Oh my God. Thank you. And uh, much love to you from the United States. Absolutely. From trash ass Arizona, the Florida (laughs) of the West Coast. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Uh, So um, to that, I say, there is a serial killer coloring book. Get the fuck out of here. 
I had no idea, but I looked, she sent me, she screenshotted me pictures and I, I have to get my hands on this. Plus it would be a good way for us to get more show ideas. Yeah. Um, so we got a tweet from Rebecca Stepp on Twitter, who was listening on Fruit Loops pod uh, or listening to Fruit Loops pod while she was in labor. And she said mm. after she got the epidural that she, that listening to us helped oh, her. Wow. Can you believe that? <laughs> Can you believe that? Wow. I mean, of all the things to do when you're in labor, uh, it's just it it blew my, it blew my mind. I had to like do a double take at the tweet, but uh, she said thank you so much. Y'all helped me uh, uh, a lot last night by m- just making your podcast. I love how funny y'all can be and how you're putting cases that I've never even heard of before out there. And we at Fruit Loops Pod want to wish Happy Born Day to her beautiful yeah. baby boy Logan, Aww. and we are so happy for her and her family, and would like. Uh, her to be on the lookout for a born day gift from Fruit Loops uh, for the addition to her family. And thank you for being a part of our little Fruit Loops pod family. So, yeah, thank you uh, so much. Yes, thank you. And we'd like to shout out our new patrons. Okay, so shout out to our new patrons. I'm Thurston for Kirsten J, Meg, mm, Meg, and <laughs> Ay, 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 Chelsea Alcantara, <laughs> and Ashley, Bashley, Bo Bashley, Banana, Fana, Fo Fashley, Fee, Fi, Fo Mashley, Ashley, uh, and Mama, Mama, Maya, Sharon, and Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being our patrons. Yeah, Hip-hop thank you. Air horns. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Thank you. We are going to take a quick ad break and get to the story when we come back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Great. 
Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Check out the murderific true crime podcast hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. And we're back. So, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Colorado's most prolific serial killer, Vincent Groves. Ooh, can't wait. Never heard this name before. Um, so now we're going to get into some stats. <laughs> <laughs> so Vincent Daryl Groves, a.k.a. the Colfax serial killer, is Colorado's most ser- prolific serial killer. Groves was a black man. And some people still say African-American. Um, and it's totally fine to use, I think, it depends on the person you're talking to and their preference. Welcome to Culture Corner. I prefer black, but right. um, maybe an older individual might prefer African-American. It's funny because um, it, we used to say black mm-hmm. and then we were told that that's offensive. So we were told to use African-American mm-hmm. and now now it, it, black is preferred. It's it's so it just depends on when you were born and what you know you were told was OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just depends. You just have to um, sort of meet people where they are. And um, I always correct people when they say African-American because it makes me very uncomfortable to watch people try to spit it out of their mouth because they look uncomfortable saying it. Have you ever seen somebody say African-American? Like they whisper it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) African-American. Anyway, so I just want them to stop because it makes it really awkward. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he was born on April 19th, 1954. So he was an Aries and his date of death was 1031, 1996. Uh, he was born and died in Denver, Colorado. Uh, he was connected to 15 homicides from 1978 to 1988 and is believed to have at least seven and up to 24 victims, according to uh, a DA in Colorado um, who was asked. Uh, he was convicted of killing three women. Most of his murder victims were found in Denver. Uh, His victims uh, that we know of, let's speak their names, shall we? Uh, These queens, Juanita Becky Lovato, 19, Diane Mancera, 25, Tammy Sue Woodrum, 17, Sheila Washington, 
Uh, Rhonda Fisher was 30. Joyce uh, Ramey, uh, 23. Zebra Mason, 19. Jeanette Baca, 17. Emma Jennifer, 25. Peggy Cuff, 20. Pamela Megan, 17. Norma Jean Halford, 21. Pamela Montgomery, 35. Faye Johnson was 22. Carolyn Walker was 18. And Cynthia Boyd was 19. And there were so many women um, I looked up obituaries and stuff, but it, it was just so daunting. Um, yeah, yeah. So in this episode, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of information to give you about the victims. About each victim, yeah. yeah. Um, so now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Denver, Colorado in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the site where Denver sits today served as an early stopping place for the Arapaho and fur trappers and traders. The city of Denver was founded in November 1858 as a gold mining town. Founded, quote unquote. Uh, people already, <laughs> people already lived there. there. Yeah. Uh, but technically. They, yeah. <clears throat> um, so Pueblo Colorado, about 100 miles outside of Denver, was co-founded by James Pearson Beckworth, an explorer and frontiersman and a black man born in Virginia in 1805. He escaped enslavement to become one of the few black mountain men on the western frontier. He then traveled all over the west as a fur trader, trapper, and scout. There is also a pass named for him between California and Nevada. That is so cool. I think it's really fascinating. I would love to see a movie about him. Oh, my God. Me, too. That would be so cool. So, uh, Hollywood. Yeah. Are you listening? I mean, I, we've made so many suggestions. Recommendations. Yeah. What are you waiting for? <laughs> Colorado Territory was formed on February 28th, 1861, out of lands previously part of Kansas, Nebraska, Utah, and New Mexico territories. Technically, the territory was open to slavery under the Dred Scott decision of 1857, but with the pending civil war and the majority pro-union sentiment in the territory, the question was rendered moot. Denver became the territorial capital in 1867, and Colorado became a state in 1876. The Homestead Act of 1862, a hor horrific piece of legislation, if you ask me, parceled out millions of acres of land to settlers. All U.S. citizens, including women, black people, freed slaves, and immigrants, were eligible to apply to the federal government for a homestead, uh, which was a 160-acre plot of land. The only requirements were that the applicant must be 21 years of age or be the head of a household, and the applicant must never have, quote, borne arms against the United States government or given aid and comfort to its enemies, unquote. So hmm. after the Civil War, this meant that ex-Confederate soldiers were ineligible to apply for a homestead. Hmm, that sounds fair to me. The Exodusters were Black migrants who left the South after the Civil War during the Exodus of 1879 to settle in the states of Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Uh, this was the first mass migration of uh, Black people from the South after the Civil War. 
From 1862 to 1934, the federal government granted over a million and a half homesteads to private citizens. This represented approximately 10% of the entire land mass of the United States. It was a massive transfer of land ownership from the federal government to individual citizens and instigated a series of land rushes when people rushed in to settle the land on a first-come, first-served basis. Drunk History has a pretty good account of this happening um, west of the Mississippi. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's it's just a, a funny scene that plays in my head where people are just like running, running. <laughs> in there, running and like staking like their shovels and land and stuff. Uh, the Homestead Act facilitated the rapid settlement of territories in the West and Midwest United States. Unfortunately, one people's gain was another people's loss, as indigenous people were pushed off their lands to make way for homesteaders. The Indian Removal Act of 1830, another trash-ass piece of legislation, institutionalized the practice of forcing Native Americans off of their ancestral lands in order to make way for European settlement. The Indian Appropriations Act of 1851 authorized the establishment of reservations in Oklahoma and inspired the creation of reservations in other states as well. Mm. The U.S. federal government saw the reservations as a means of keeping Native Americans off the lands that they wanted white Americans to settle. Just um, horrendous. Uh, By 1910, there were about 4,500 Black people in Denver, with the predominant amount centered in the Five Points neighborhood. Madam C.J. Walker, the first female self-made millionaire in America, ran her business in Denver between 1905 and 1907, and her business was in the creamy crack or relaxer for Black people to straighten their hair. Um, So welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth, um, we could certainly spend hours talking about black hair and Madam C.J. Walker. If you want to know more, go to Google Alicia. Um, but after black people were emancipated, um, they were sometimes able to find work for white people in white society. And to assimilate, they had to straighten their hair to be acceptable by white society and survive. And this trend continued until the early 2000s. Um, but there's just been the natural hair wo- movement. But anyway, the creamy crack, it's a white substance. Um, back in the day, they used to use lye. Um, but uh, Madam C.J. Walker created a system that was safer. It's still burned, but... Um, the burning means it's working, uh, <laughs> but it makes it makes your your curly or kinky hair um, straight and shiny. Um, so, uh, and ma- back in the day, Madam C.J. Walker, there were certainly other entrepreneurs in the black hair beauty space, but she was the most successful and well known. And you hear about her every every year on Black History Month. So there you go. Yeah, and there's that uh, TV show on on Netflix, and that was pretty good. It was pretty good. Um, there were some aspects of it that I was like, eh, I don't know, I didn't I didn't care for. Yeah, it was a little soapy. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't entirely accurate. Accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so. still good to see because, yeah. you know. Yeah. And there weren't, um, I don't remember any white people in it. Yeah. Me neither. There might have been some like uh, side, like, I don't know. 
<laughs> side people. <laughs> yeah, but there there wasn't any white savior. Um, no, which, there was no white savior, and yeah. there were no no main characters that were white. It was like I can't remember any white people in it. So yeah. By the way, if you're like, how how can I be anti racist? If you're watching a movie about like racism or slavery, and you're white and you feel good at the end, it is not a good movie. Uh, <laughs> you you want to feel you should feel terrible at the end of the movie. <laughs> that's that's how you know it's good green book get the fuck out of here the hell (laughs) it just makes white people feel happy like oh solve that one so anyway sorry tangent okay so uh metropolitan growth after world war ii created a ring of suburban communities around denver which included the uh suburb of wheat ridge which uh that's where vincent Groves was from oh cool in 1973 the supreme court told denver it must desegregate its schools Black white people do not like hearing that. Uh, it was the first city outside of the Deep South to be ordered to do so. The ruling sent one quarter of Denver's students across town in an effort to integrate. Many white families who wanted to escape busing requirements fled to the suburbs. White flight. Um, soon, rumors spread that Denver hoped to acquire the suburban counties. By the way, our schools now are more segregated than they yeah. were the year before um, Brown v. Board of Education. Yep, I I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. In 1974, Frida Poundstone, a mother of five turned conservative political lobbyist, rallied the suburbs and the state to pass the Poundstone Amendment, a law that prohibits a city and county from annexing land without voter approval from the county that would lose the land. Presented as the little guy fighting against Big Denver in an attempt to, quote, unquote, prevent land grabs, her amendment was actually aimed at removing suburban Arapaho and Jefferson counties from any possibility of being included in Denver's court-ordered busing for desegregation purposes. Voters across Colorado approved the amendment in 1974. People of European descent, a.k.a. white people, (laughs) constitute the majority of Denver's population, but those of Latinx ancestry, particularly Mexican, comprise an increasing one-third of its residents. About one-tenth are black, with even smaller numbers of Asians and Native Americans. Ain't that a bitch that um, it was Native American land and now they... Um, compromise or yeah such a small percentage such a tiny percentage we don't even mention what percentage it is. yeah it's <laughs> shameful shame yeah. america um yes. so now we're going to get into the killer's early life so vincent daryl groves was born april 19th 1954 um so he would have been like a great migration baby. Um, He was raised in the Denver suburb of Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the oldest of three brothers. The family lived in a brick home in a middle-class neighborhood. His father was a postal worker and a deacon at a Baptist church. Uh, And his mother was a teacher who played the organ at the church. Vincent grew to be six feet, five inches tall, and he was a high school athlete active in student council. He was a runner-up for prom king, and he played on the same basketball team as the future NFL wide receiver David Logan. He graduated from Wheat Ridge High School in 1972. So he must have been a charming guy, a good-looking guy, well-liked. Um, Vincent, Sounds like it, Yeah. yeah. 
then attended Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where he played basketball for two years and he dropped out in 1974. Then he moved back to Colorado, where he cared for his elderly grandmother, worked and spent time with his parents. To his parents and his grandmother, Vincent seemed an upstanding citizen, attending church on Sundays with his family and helping them out. But away from his family, it was a different story. Vincent began spending a lot of time drinking in a lounge called the New Yorker, and his friends started to think that he might be an alcoholic. Oh, fuck off. Only you can decide if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> Nobody else can do that for you. Oh, no. I decided my brother's an alcoholic. <laughs> has he, has he, 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 won't, he won't. He won't oh, admit it. He won't. Oh, no. interesting. Yeah. Oh, I just hate the word alcoholic. Um, as somebody who has, uh, from time to time, partaken a little bit too much in the booze. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I don't like the, I don't like the word. It almost makes it sound like um, uh, you like, um, like you literally are a slave to um, this, this substance. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just some people me. are. Some, some <laughs> people are. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, the word bothers me. And so I had to say something. Sorry. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> um, he also took um, cruising a five mile strip of East Colfax Avenue in Denver, an area with a reputation for being a hot spot for sex work and drugs. Pimps and sex workers became his closest acquaintances. Uh, so now we're going to dive into the timeline. In 1978, get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Vincent Groves was 24 years old and living in Denver, where he worked as an electrician at the Gates Rubber Company near downtown. There he befriended a 17-year-old sex worker named Jeanette Louise Baca, and he became her pimp. Mmm. On June 11, 1978, Jeanette's nude body was found dumped and concealed in Conifer, Colorado, an unincorporated community in the foothills of West Denver. Her body was found by two hikers at the bottom of a 10-foot embankment off the side of the roadway. Jeanette's body had been there somewhere between 5 to 10 days. On June 20th, 1978, some of Jeanette's personal property was found about a mile and a half from where her body was located, and some of the items had been burned. Police interviewed Groves, but charges were never filed. 
Hmm, I wonder why. Sex worker, who cares? Yeah. Um, on March 26, 1979, 25-year-old Emma Jennifer, uh, an employee of Warner Brothers Distribution, was found raped and strangled to death in the bathtub of her apartment in Cherry Creek. Police found a radio in the tub with her, and it was surmised that the killer put it there to make it look like Emma had electrocuted herself. At the time, Emma... Uh, Emma's on and off again boyfriend, who went by the nickname Hook, was the main suspect, but he was later cleared. On July 4th, 1979, the body of Joyce Ramey, a 23-year-old sex worker from Denver, was found raped and strangled to death in an industrial park east of the Stapleton International Airport. She was found with her hands above her head and legs stretched out. Joyce had fought her attacker hard, and bruises and scrapes covered her calves, her back, her right buttocks, her hip, and her neck, and blood soaked the back of her head. Mm. Um, at this time, Groves was living with a 21-year-old woman named Goodbye Norma Jean. <laughs> uh, her name was Norma Jean, but the song wasn't about her. Norma Jean Halford. And on August 24th, 1979, a Colorado State trooper discovered Halford's empty vehicle parked along a mountainous road alongside Georgetown, west of Denver, and Norma's body was never found. On November 3rd, 1979, the partially nude body of Peggy Cuff, a 20-year-old who disappeared after her shift at a collections agency in Denver, was discovered. Her body was found five miles from her office in an alley about nine blocks from the University of Denver, face down on the asphalt. She had been raped and strangled, and her blue corduroy pants were nearly torn from her body. Mm, that sounds pretty um, violent and brutal. Yeah. Um, on February 1st, 1980, the nude body of 19-year-old Cynthia Boyd, a sex worker, was found on 88th Avenue and Tower Road, uh, a sparsely populated area near where Denver International Airport is today. She had been strangled and there were ligature marks around her neck. In 1980, Groves was still living in Denver. He was hustling cocaine, heroin, and marijuana. While playing poker with some friends, he became reacquainted with a woman named Jeanette Hill. They'd met at church years earlier, but only recently began dating. That's two Jeanettes, one story. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah. The two soon moved into a second floor apartment on Pearl Street in Denver. By 1981, Groves had left Gates Rubber and was working as a security guard and then as a supervisor for an office building cleaning crew that traveled all over the city. Unfortunately for Jeanette Hill, Groves was a terrible boyfriend. <laughs> um, he often disappeared for days at a time and life wasn't much better when he was around because he was often drunk or high and they fought a lot. One night just before their wedding on March 23rd, 1981, someone broke a window to their apartment and left a gun on the cell. Hmm? Groves freaked out and told Jeanette to pack her shit. They were moving right now. Uh oh. They drove across town in the middle of the night and moved in with his parents in Wheat Ridge. A few weeks later on their wedding night, Jeanette slept while her new husband got high. Sounds like a great honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> For <laughs> one person. Uh, <laughs> um, 
By the summer of 1981, Vincent Groves and Jeanette Hill were arguing all the time. Surprise! And on August 14th, 1981, they were arguing again, this time about a fishing trip Groves planned to take with two friends and their 17-year-old daughter, Tammy Sue Woodrum. Groves was taking a camper, which was attached to the bed of a pickup truck parked outside. Groves refused to let Jeanette go along on the trip, and he abruptly left, saying he'd be back. The next morning, Jeanette was surprised when Groves returned, as she did not expect to see him until after the weekend. He told her that he had something to tell her, but that he needed to tell her in the mountains. Oh, boy. Um... Nobody is giving me any news in the mountains. <laughs> in the we mountains. can yeah, sit no our asses you. down and talk right here, <laughs> mister. Uh, Groves told her to get in the pickup, which was still connected to that camper. She did. Groves started the engine and pulled away. He was silent as they drove toward the foothills. When he finally began to speak, he started to cry. He told Jeanette that he had uh, picked up Tammy and before going to get the others, the two went to Boulder to score some drugs for the trip. They uh, then drove toward Fraser, about 90 miles away, and pulled off of the road. Tammy started to shoot up, but something had gone wrong and she overdosed. She was dead. Hmm. Jeanette wanted to jump out of the truck and run away. Understandable. Yeah. Instead, she asked Groves where the girl was. Groves looked at his wife. Tammy's body, he said, was in the camper. Ooh, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I'm out. That's all, folks. It's been nice. Um, just turns out I got some other things to do. Um, when, I, when I read that part, I was like, I, I actually uh, exclaimed out loud and I, I was all by myself. I was like, wow. What? Wow. No, that I mean, that is fucking nuts. That is nuts. And I really think a movie ought to be made about this. Guy. Of this. I yeah. mean, just come on, Hollywood. Come on. Listen to us. For God's sakes, Netflix and Hulu, where are you at? Um, so Jeanette convinced Groves to turn himself in and Groves brought Tammy's body to a suburban Denver police department still in the camper. Still in the camper. What? I, Can I, you imagine? I can't wrap my head around this. Uh, driving up what to the police happening? station. Uh, I got this body in my camper. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh my God. How do you do that? I, oh, this is making me get heart palpitations. Uh, uh, <laughs> But the drug overdose story fell apart when forensic evidence showed Tammy had been beaten, raped, and strangled. Evidence proved that Tammy was drug-free when she was killed, and marks on the teenager's skin matched Groves' belt. He was put on trial for first-degree murder, but a jury convicted him only of second-degree murder. Groves was sentenced to 12 years in prison in the summer of 1982. But before Groves went to prison... He was released on custody while his case was appealed. Oh, boy. Which is not something that would happen today, but apparently happened back then. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network.
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Oh, boy. Um, so many things. So many things wrong with this. <laughs> um, but it is really strange to me that a black guy on trial for murder. I'm wondering what this girl's. I don't I didn't know what the girl's race was. Tammy. Yeah, I don't know either. But um, it just seems strange that a young girl was murdered no matter what her race was. And yeah, he only got, he got 12 second years. Degree, yeah. Yeah. And 12 years. And then he was re- released on appeal. Yeah. Um, he must have been a real charmer. Yeah. My understanding was that he was uh, pretty charming and uh, good looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and people tended to like him and trust him. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, while out, Grove stopped to pick up a sex worker. It's like... I'm going to go pick up some cigarettes or I'm just going to go pick up some snacks at uh, uh, Circle K and uh, picked up a sex worker on Colfax Avenue. But the sex worker was an undercover police officer on a sting operation. She recognized him and would not get in the car with him. He also picked up a young female hitchhiker on Colfax Avenue who he mistook for a sex worker. She agreed to have a drink with him in his truck, and he drove to a remote area by the airport and parked. Groves then attempted to rape her while threatening her with a knife and declaring he would gag her with his socks. Mm, No. Fortunately, the young woman escaped. And this was all while he was, uh, you know, out of prison on appeal. Okay. Many problems (laughs) there. Um Groves' license plate number was recorded by onlookers, and the victim identified Groves as her assailant. A search of his car yielded two knives and an open liquor bottle, a pair of women's underwear, and a piece of electrical cord with a slip knot tied at the end of it. So, like, he was yeah. ready to strangle To do something, to yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Groves admitted that he picked up the victim and that he wanted to have sex with her, but he denied assaulting or threatening her. Charges were filed against Groves regarding this incident, but they were dropped when the victim failed to appear. Well, yeah. And I mean, she, I don't, she was a hitchhiker, but when people are like, why don't women come forward? Because your, your vagina and its history are all on trial um, when you come forward. Yeah. And they get into your life and put everything out on display for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's hard. It's mm-hmm. really hard. It's really hard. And the odds are against you. And yeah. look, 
this system is so fucked up. Fucked up, yeah. Um, Groves was sent to prison on August 4th, 1982, in prison between teaching classes to inmates and taking college classes of his own. Groves received visit from his visits from his wife, Jeanette, who asked for his confession. When Groves refused, she soon filed for divorce, and by 1985, their divorce was final. During his imprisonment, he finished college and went through several programs for rehabilitation of sex offenders. After serving five years, he was released on February 13, 1987, under mandatory parole. His family was still supportive of him. His father gave him a blue 1978 AMC Concord, and Groves worked for a time as a church janitor, then as a department store janitor. Hmm. A lot of jobs. Uh, I have three jobs, man. Um, but he was soon back to his old ways, selling selling drugs and uh, hanging out with sex workers and pimps. And in March of 1987, he picked up a sex worker named Sheila Washington. But before they went to her motel, they bought $100 worth of crack cocaine, which Groves paid for. Inside room eight at the El Patio Motel in Colfax, the two smoked crack together. Suddenly, Groves attacked Sheila and put his hands around her throat. Sheila screamed, but he quickly overpowered her. In the struggle, one of her feet hit a glass coffee table and it landed with a crash on the floor. Ooh, sounds dramatic. Again, Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) A man staying in room 10 at the El Patio Motel heard the fight between Sheila and Groves and he kicked open the door. There he saw Groves half naked standing over the woman. Groves threw on his clothes and took off. Sheila called police to report the assault, but she didn't know Groves' name. On April 1st, 1987, the nude body of Rhonda Fisher, 30, was found off of Perry Park Road, another sparsely populated area south of Denver. Rhonda had been a seamstress and a sex worker. She'd been beaten and strangled to death, possibly with a small cord. I mean, this guy's appetite um, is... He's pretty prolific. Yeah, he sure is. Um, on July 2nd, 1987, 18-year-old Carolyn Walker disappeared. She worked at Domino's Pizza. Remember the days of Domino's Pizza? Um, he was last seen at her boyfriend's apartment. Her nude body was found in a ditch near I-70 and Colfax Avenue on July 5th. On September 17th, 1987, the body of Zabra Ann Mason was found slumped in her vehicle in a field off West Colfax Avenue. Zabra was a 19-year-old former honor student and a banker from Denver who was due for a job interview the day she was found. Groves' bank, Bank Western, was near where Zabra's car was. Um, man. She had so much, like, going for her. Yeah. Um, on January 29th, 1988, the nude body of Faye Johnson, a 23-year-old sex worker who had uh, last been seen on Colfax Avenue getting into a stranger's car, was found near East 6th Avenue and Manila Road. Um, she had been strangled to death. By the way, this Colfax Avenue, my understanding, um, again, is like a CD, used to be a seedy part of town. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, gentrification, I think, has turned things around. I don't Maybe. know. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I w- my understanding was that it's still kind of seedy. Mm. But I don't mm. I don't know. I don't know. Denver folks. Colorado Fruit Loops gang. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
On April 29, 1988, the naked body of Juanita Becky Lovato, 19, was found in a field near Strasburg, east of Denver. And on July 26, 1988, the body of Diane Mancera, 25, of Denver was found dumped along I-25 just west of Parker. So that's um, yeah, that's a lot. A lot of murders. Uh, mm-hmm. In the early hours of August 14th, 1988, a man heard a poorly tuned vehicle in the alley behind his home. Then uh, looked out the window to see a tall black man pull a body out of the car and dump it. The man in shock called the police. See, this is a good time for white people to call the police when when they when they see stuff <laughs> see like somebody this. dump a yeah. body. <laughs> uh, the body was that of 35-year-old sex worker Pamela Montgomery and she had been strangled to death. Also in August of 1988, Sheila Washington, the woman that Groves had attacked in the motel room, spotted Groves driving his Concord down East Colfax Avenue. She flagged down a police car and reported it. An officer stopped Groves, but only questioned him briefly and then let him go. Now we're going to get into the investigation and arrest. Man, that was so many murders. I am yeah. tired. A Were lot you of tired, murders. Mr. Groves? <laughs> uh, in the late 80s, a multi-jurisdictional task force had been formed as bodies kept turning up at an average about a body a month, all possibly killed by the same person. So this was in the 80s, and I think, right, like serial killers... Um, profiling that was still kind of a new thing. Right. And I think at the time they also didn't believe that black people were serial killers. Um, Investigators began to suspect that the nearly 20 unsolved murders were all connected to Groves. Most of the women were sex workers and nearly all had been sexually assaulted and strangled. In some cases, Groves was the last person seen with the victim. In others, Groves supplied drugs to the women or was known to the women in some way. During their investigations, police also learned of attacks on other sex workers, including the one on Sheila Washington. And on September 1st, 1988, police arrested Groves near the corner of South Colorado Boulevard, East Mexico Avenue, on an attempted first-degree murder charge in the Washington case. As part of the investigation into the attack on Sheila Washington, police also wanted to question Groves about the series of unsolved murders. We have many questions, Mr. Groves. Uh, Police (laughs) interviewed his parents, his girlfriend, and his ex-wife, among others. His vehicle was taken to an auto repair shop where it was searched and vacuumed. Officers collected hairs they found in the car. The witness in Pamela Montgomery's case was taken to the auto repair shop where Grove's AMC Concord was impounded. The witness vaguely recognized the car, then asked to hear the engine. It made a distinct chugging sound, identical to the one he had heard in the alley. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. During an interview with investigators that stretched past midnight, Groves told police Washington had stolen $1,600 from him. He never tried to choke her, he said. When an investigator asked about the dead women, Groves admitted that he knew many of them. He identified a sex worker he'd been with, claimed he knew the killer of one woman, and looked at a photo of another victim. You've done your homework, he told investigators. It looks real bad for me. I wish I could have seen his face. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Prosecutors 
uh, tried to introduce details of eight murders before Groves' attempted murder trial began in Denver District Court in early 1989, thinking that the unsolved strangulation deaths could help show a pattern leading up to Washington's attack. But the judge rejected the motion. During his trial, Groves' attorney said that his client tussled with Sheila Washington, but there wasn't any physical evidence that he tried to strangle her. Mm. He argued that prosecutors based their entire case on claims from a drug-using sex worker who'd by then been sentenced to three years in prison for cocaine possession. Who is this attorney? Is this your man's? Come get your man's. Is this is this your guy? Is this your guy? Really? He's garbage. Um, yeah. I know they have to do their job and defend their clients. And that can be a difficult position to be put in when you even when you think the person is guilty. But man, yeah, um, there's right and there's wrong. Uh, and this just seems very wrong. Uh, the defense claimed that Sheila had uh had stolen money from Groves, prompting the attack, and that the incident was a simple assault that shouldn't have made it out of a county court. Uh, The case against Groves fell apart, and on February 16th, 1989, it took a jury only 90 minutes to acquit him. What? Yeah. Again, she was a sex worker. She didn't stand a chance. was doing cocaine. Uh They don't really care. Crack cocaine. Yeah. 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 But the earlier multi-jurisdictional investigations were able to tie other cases to Groves. Investigators linked Groves' DNA profile to the murders of 19-year-old Becky Lovato and 25-year-old Diane Mancera. The two cases became trendsetters for forensic investigators in Colorado because, again, uh, DNA was in its infancy at that time. Woo! Hip-hop air horns for DNA. Um, Yeah. Also... Trendsetters for forensic investigations in Colorado, but yet we've only just now heard of this guy. Right, right. According to Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey, there were three victims who had managed to escape Groves, including Sheila Washington and the young hitchhiker. Um, So now we are going to dive into the trial. What do you got, Beth? Groves was convicted in both cases in 1990 and sentenced to life. But by that time, he was in poor health. He had hepatitis C and suffered from chronic liver problems. In 1996, his body began to shut down and Groves was moved in and out of hospitals. The drugs and the booze do work, just not for your body or your liver. (laughs) Um, In the fall of that year, Lakewood police interviewed him. Investigators asked about the 1987 death of Zebra Mason and 19-year-old former honor student from Denver who was due for her job interview the day she was found slumped in her vehicle in a field off of West Colfax Avenue. Groves earlier admitted that his bank, Bank Western, was near where Mason's car was found. And the investigators told Groves he could clear his conscience and give the young woman's family some closure. But he gave up nothing on Mm. her case or any other case. Groves died October 31st, 1996, Happy Halloween, Mm. at University Hospital in Denver. He was 42 years old. What an asshole. Yeah. 
So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you, he is D-E-A-D dead. Uh, <laughs> normally, this is where the story would come to a close. But after Groves' death, there were investigations into several cold cases. And in 2010, a de- detective uh, in the Colorado cold case uh, police department made the connection between Groves and the murders of four women in, Den- in the Denver area using DNA evidence recovered from the case file related to 17-year-old Tammy Woodrum, the other DNA evidence that had been used in the earlier cases no longer existed. Thanks to DNA, Wendy's hero. (laughs) (laughs) In 2012, Gross was connected to the murder of Emma Jennifer, 25, whose body was found in Denver in March of 1978. Joyce Ramey, 23, who was killed in July of 1979. And Peggy Cuff, whose body was found in November of 1979, also in Denver. And 35-year-old Pamela Montgomery, who was strangled to death in August of 1988, was connected to Groves as well, uh, though not through DNA, uh, but the eyewitness or earwitness testimony from the man who saw him dump her body from his car. That's great. Um, yeah. In 1988, in, uh, the investigation suspected grows of at least a dozen cases that remained unsolved. But Peggy Cuff and Emma Jeff Jennifer never even showed up on that list. Groves has officially been connected to seven murders, but how many more victims there were, we don't know. Authorities believe that he was responsible for 20 murders, maybe even more, making him Colorado's most prolific serial killer. Gross's family was caught by surprise at the revelations of the DNA evidence. They did not believe that he had committed the crimes that he was accused of. And in 2010, they moved out of the home that Groves had grown up in. That has got to be a very... um uh, that's an aspect of true crime I don't think we get into very much. What it's the like families. for the families of yeah. these perps. It'd be horrible. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, these guys destroy all kinds of families, their own, other people's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're right, Beth. The OG <laughs> true crime comes through every time. Uh, <laughs> so now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and our takeaways from the story. So uh, this one, I I don't know. (laughs) There's nothing in his childhood that would make you think that he could be capable of this. Um, He was doing drugs, so that was probably a factor, but uh, I don't know. Doing (laughs) drugs! We don't know what his uh, family life was like, um, but it seemed pretty normal. Yeah. Maybe there was stuff going on behind closed doors that we don't know about. Yeah. Um, His parents lived in the same house. That's crazy to me. I'm <laughs> you get to live in the same house your whole life like your yeah, so when you're born people to, do that's yeah, insane. People do that. I never I never <laughs> one thing I did notice was that he started out as an electrician which is a, a good trade and then ended up as a janitor uh, which is good work don't get me wrong but it's unskilled labor and he did have a skill but he he didn't use it so mm. I, 
I don't know what that means. Um, I mean, I, I guess it means that he was sliding down hill, mm-hmm. you know, as yeah. murders progressed. Like he, he maybe he was just losing it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. And plus he was drinking a lot and doing a lot of yes, drugs. That's like true. maybe it was hard to maintain. It was too hard to maintain a, a serial killer lifestyle and uh, a skilled yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a skilled job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's too bad that he never talked about his crimes because this one would have been a good one to study. And um, I was watching a show about FBI profilers, which is something I'm fascinated with and mm-hmm. um, how uh, like the, the story that Mindhunters is about with the FBI guys going in and interviewing serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made a point that the, um, the serial killers that they talked to were the serial killers that agreed to talk to them. Uh-huh. So, you know, it had to be a serial killer that was willing to talk to them. And they're, they were usually um, guys who were pretty smart mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, wanted to talk. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, they came up with these profiles um, based on these guys. And that's why they thought that the serial killers were all white dudes mm-hmm. um, who were smart mm-hmm. and uh that they were uh, a certain type of killer, mm-hmm. like the Ted Bundy type, you know, mm-hmm. um, because those were the guys that agreed to interview with them. And maybe it's possible they didn't know they were not aware of any black serial killers at that time. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But um, I-, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. And actually, I am certain that they weren't aware. Again, um, even people today, 2020, people yeah. are like, wait, there's black wait, serial killers? Black serial killers? Uh, yeah. Do you guys have enough content to even like do a show? <laughs> like, um, yeah, people still don't know. And I imagine this this exists in almost everything. Medicine, science, um, is that when white guys are doing the work, they... Um, only look to white people or white males um, as their subjects. Yeah, that's Um, true. Yeah. Yeah. And also that, I mean, I wonder if a black individual uh, who would have been considered for this profiling study that the FBI did um, would have been even comfortable sitting down with law enforcement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that could be like they're like, oh hell no, hell I'm not, no, I'm not talking to the I'm not FBI. Talking about Buzz. Get the fuck yeah. out of here! Get out of my cell! <laughs> Bye, guard. <laughs> Good uh, point. Yeah, because they were white dudes. Yeah, 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 and um, and uh, law enforcement, uh, mm-hmm. FBI, no less. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember. FBI has a troubled history with black people. Right, right. Um, so, uh, Beth, I agree with all the things you said. Um, it is a mystery uh, why he snapped, which makes him a very terrifying monster. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, the drugs didn't help. <laughs> uh, it is remarkable to me, again, that he's Colorado's most prolific serial killer, and I've never heard of him before. But yeah, yeah. of course, most of his victims were women of color, sex workers, and used drugs, and were treated by law enforcement, the media, and Groves as disposable. And these women' lives mattered regardless of their activity. Yeah. Um, and even we saw when um, sex workers um, who encountered Groves like called 911 
or yeah. even um, reported their crimes and um, they were not believed and the cases went nowhere. Yeah. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So this is a how not to um, get other people murdered. Um, So there's a lot of shit going down with the police and I can understand people's first instinct to call the police when something bad happens, but hold that thought. Okay. Yeah. In case you have been under a rock, BIPOC, black indigenous people of color and LGBTQ humans are being murdered at extremely high rates when police are involved. Can we live, please? (laughs) Um, If you call the police, you might be inviting unnecessary trauma into the life of an individual. They, um, their family, their community, um, there are other ways that these things can get handled. And Wendy has said it before, and I will say it again. I do not call the police. Old Whitey, on the other hand, has them on speed dial. But before (laughs) you call them, ask yourself, is this merely an inconvenience to me? Can I put up with this and be okay? No, I need to respond. Can I handle this on my own? Is this something I could try to talk about with the person? Or no, I need to back up. Is there a friend, a neighbor, or someone who I could call to help me? Uh, No, you know what? I, I might need a professional. Can we use a mediator to talk through what's happening? Or is there an emergency response hotline I could call for somebody who's having a mentally ill episode or something or a um, drug-induced or alcohol-induced um, psychosis? Um, if I call the police, do I understand how involving the police could impact me or the other person? Um don't feel obligated to, then these are tips from ta Coates, a famous black writer and poet and activist. Um, he um, writes about race in America and um, <clears throat> he testified before um, Congress, um, made an argument for reparations. Um, and he uh, authored this article um, maybe last year um, after okay. another string of police yeah. involved um, killing. So uh, he said, don't feel obligated to defend property, property, especially corporate private property. Before confronting someone or contacting the police, ask yourself if anyone is being hurt, endangered by property, quote unquote, theft or damage. If the answer is no, then let it be. If something of yours is stolen and you need to file a report for insurance or other purposes, consider going to the police station instead of bringing the cop into your community. You may inadvertently be putting someone in your neighborhood at risk. If you observe someone exhibiting behavior that seems 
odd to you. Don't assume that they are publicly intoxicated. A traumatic brain injury or similar medical episode may be occurring. Ask if they are okay, if they have a medical condition, and if they need assistance. If you see someone pulled over with car trouble, stop and ask if they need help or if you can call a tow truck for them. If the police are introduced to such situation, they may give punitive and unnecessary tickets with people who just have car issues um, and target those without papers or worse, get ice involved. Don't do it. Um, Keep a contact list of community resources like suicide hotlines. When police are contacted to quote unquote manage these situations, people with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by cops than those without mental health challenges. Uh, Check your impulse to call the police on someone you believe looks or is acting suspicious. Is their race, gender, ethnicity, class, or housing situation influencing your choice? Such calls can be death sentences to many people. Encourage teachers, coworkers, and organizers to avoid inviting police into classroom, workplaces, and public spaces. Instead, create for a culture of taking care of each other and not unwittingly putting people in harm's way. If your neighbor is having a party and the noise is bothering you, go over and talk to them. Getting to know your neighbors with community events like monthly block parties is a good way to make asking them to quiet down a little less uncomfortable or to find another neighbor who is willing to do so. If you see someone peeing in public, just look away. (laughs) Remember, for example, that many houseless people do not have reliable access to bathrooms. Uh, Hold and attend de-escalation, conflict resolution, first aid, volunteer medic, and self-defense workshops in your neighborhood, school, workplace, or community organization. Street art is beautiful. Don't report graffiti and other street artists. If you see work that includes fascistic or hate speech, paint over it yourself or with friends. And remember that police can escalate domestic violence situations. You can support friends and neighbors who are being victimized by abusers by offering them a place to stay, a ride to a safe location, or watch their children. Utilize community resources like safe houses and hotlines. And again, I admire ta Coates. I just thought that these were some tips for us to ponder and consider yeah. before calling the police. So Good there you tips. Go. Thank, Thank you. you. Now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. Um, so this is some homework for you. Click on the Black Voices or Black Lives Matter tab when you open in your streaming service and sit and watch. Uh, I just watched Disclosure um, about trans lives in media and in America on Netflix. And it was eye opening for me because most people in America don't know any trans people. And I have gotten to know a couple in the span of COVID from all these like Zoom parties and get to know people and stuff. Um, But before that, I don't think I did. And um, that's true for most people. So this is a way to introduce yourself to the trans community and um, educate yourself um, so that you will not traumatize people. Uh, Also, a true crime goodie is It Was Simple about the Betty Broderick story. Have you heard of Betty Broderick? Yes. (laughs) And I listened to that podcast. I binged it totally. Me too. It was it was amazing. Fascinating, and right? I had never heard of this w- crazy woman. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, she, she, even now, she doesn't think she did anything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is crazy. So anyway, go check out that podcast. It's very good. 
Yeah, it is good. And uh, building off of your recommendation, uh, Dirty John, the TV show, is now an anthology series. So they're going to spotlight one different case each season. Oh, awesome. It moved to the USA Network. It was on Bravo with the first season, uh, mm-hmm. but now it's on the USA Network. And the series right now is about Betty Broderick. I'm bouncing up and down. I'm so <laughs> excited. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by her case. It's a, it's a doozy. Yes. Oh, oh, and Hamilton is going to be on Disney Plus on July 3rd. So mark your calendars, guys. I am so excited. I know. And we have that day off from work because we usually get July 4th and July 4th is a Saturday. So we get the third off. So you know what I'm doing as soon as I get up in the morning. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get me some breakfast and a cup of coffee and watch (laughs) Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should make a... Fruit Loops event, like live tweet, um, or uh, Hamilton, yeah, yeah, like live stream our reactions or something. I don't something, know, something, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's idea. very exciting. So, where yes. can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through our podbean patron page this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's right um, I never imagined that the show would be where it is today. Yeah. So when we set up Very like cool. our patron and our Patreon page, I was just like, oh, just put it up. <laughs> and Lord and behold, like people are really sup- out here supporting our show. So I fixed up some things. So uh, now it looks like uh, we're good to go on Patreon. So keep them coming. We really appreciate everything um this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive guys it's crazy out there detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. 
You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.